You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. You can open your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we would encourage you to grab one from the seat back in front of you. Uh, We want you to be able to see God's Word for yourself as we preach it. And so, uh, make sure that, that you have a copy of God's Word, and uh, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, uh, and, and so you just open about two-thirds of the way through, and you'll be there. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be in and around verse 13 today. Uh, so this week, uh, one of my kids was sick, and I know that many of you have faced the same thing. Uh, it, it seems like pretty much every Christmas season, our family gets hit hard with something. We've had so many Christmas parties canceled over the past few years because of that. And, uh, and, I, and I don't know about you, but when my kids are sick, I always have two things going through my mind when I walk into the room to care for them. Uh, first, I, I want to move toward them in love. I, I really, really just want to give them a hug, take care of them, hold their head while they're throwing up, do whatever it takes, do whatever it, it, it is required there. But in the back of my mind, I always have a second thought. Maybe you parents know what it is. I really hope I don't get sick. (laughs) I really hope I don't get sick. And And I think that's natural because we parents are not immune to our children's illnesses. Although I, I know some moms and dads who actually appear to be, like who, who seem like they are, uh, we're, we're not immune. We, we might have stronger immune systems than our kids, but we are all prone to sickness. And I believe that the same is true when it comes to the sickness of sin. We know that we are called to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Just like I go into the the child's room who is sick, we are called to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. We know that we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. But in the back of our minds, maybe we're just a little bit worried. Like, what if I'm more influenced by the world than they are influenced by me? You ever have that fear? What what if I fall into sin with them rather than helping rescue them out of their sin? And I I think there can really be a healthy version of that fear. Uh, We're at least taking sin seriously. We're at least thinking about it, right? But I also think it can paralyze us and keep us from relying on the power of the Holy Spirit because we misunderstand the nature of our salvation and we misunderstand the gift that has been given to us through the Lord. This was the fear of the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day. And this was what they often thought was happening to Jesus. The, the Pharisees did their best to shout at those wretched sinners from afar. They hollered at them to repent of their sin so that the Pharisees could keep their so-called righteousness. But Jesus knew that he was immune to sin. And therefore, he, like no one else, could enter into their sin-sick world. He could breathe our air. He could come up close and personal and call us out of our sin as the great physician. 
And through repentance and faith in Him, we can be united to Him. We can be confident in Him that we can do the same in our life. And so here's our big idea for today. Uh, Jesus entered our sin-sick world to call sinners to repentance. Jesus entered our sin-sick world to call sinners to repentance. So your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 9. And we're in the middle of a series called The Reason for the season. We're, we're seeking to rescue that trite and cheesy phrase from all of its connotations, and we're seeking to fill it with the meaning that Jesus gave it. On many occasions, Jesus said, For this reason I came, or I came because, or I came to. And this is the reason for his incarnation. Jesus came, the Son of God took on human nature for a reason. And we want to discover what that reason is because that is what we celebrate at Christmas. And so today we want to look at this purpose statement in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Let your eyes go there. Matthew 9, verse 13. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Simply put, Jesus came to call sinners. He came not because we had our stuff all together and he's like, okay, now I can come. He came not because we were perfect and finally had this all figured out. He came to call sinners out of their sin and to himself. We're going to study this verse in its context today. We're going to draw some connections to this understanding of the reason for the season. And so read with me in Matthew chapter 9. Be, look, look up in, at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And Jesus reclined a table in the house. Behold, as Jesus reclined a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus entered our sin-sick world to call sinners to himself through repentance. In Matthew 9, Jesus is, is still calling some of his disciples. And, and, and we see that, that the person that he's calling here is Matthew, and you're like, wait a minute, I thought I was reading the Gospel of Matthew, and, you're, and, and, and you are. Uh, see, this is Matthew's personal testimony of how Jesus called him. He knows how far from Jesus he was and how much he needed Jesus to call him, and so he gives us this little snapshot. And in Matthew's story, we see this first principle that is so important to our understanding of Christmas as well, uh, we live in a sin-sick world and are infected 
whether we know it or not. We live in a sin-sick world and are infected whether we know it or not. See, Matthew and his friends display this reality well. Matthew is a tax collector. He, he represents everything that was wrong with the Jewish world of the first century. Israel was under Roman oppression because their hearts were not broken over their sin before the Lord. They had failed to keep the law perfectly, and therefore they were under His curse. Now, now this curse of subjection to the Romans was most pointedly illustrated by the paying of taxes to Rome. The Romans took a lot in taxes, which was in and of itself very frustrating. And every time you would walk past a a tax collection booth on your way to the market, you were reminded that, that something was not right in God's promised land. Your milk and honey was going to someone else. Not only that, but the the coins they used to pay those taxes had inscriptions that declared Caesar's supposed divinity. So every single Jew was carrying around little pieces of idolatry in their pockets and casting them to the emperor who seemed to hold their lives in his hand. I think some of the Christmas carols that we know and love today poetically acknowledge what they must have been feeling. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. No ear may hear His coming, yet in this world of sin... And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. O come, O come, Emmanuel, disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to fight to flight. That's what they were feeling when they walked past a tax collection booth. And we must feel the futility of this sin-sick existence if we are really going to grasp the reason for the season. And if we are really going to take hold of the gospel ourselves. Believers, while we are not the nation of Israel, We are exiles, living in a sin-sick world, waiting for God to deliver on the full promise of giving His people a, a home in the new heavens and the new earth. Things are still not as they should be, and that's what Advent is all about. We are waiting not just to celebrate the first coming of Jesus, but we are also waiting in order to set our hearts on His second coming. We still live in exile, and how we respond to that exile matters. That's what the song Joy to the World is all about, really. It's all about the second coming of Jesus. And Israel was was feeling that fallenness of the world. We see two responses in the characters 
of this story. Two responses that are, that are common to our sinful hearts. For some of them, their solution to the problem was to, to try to make themselves more righteous by following man-made rules and traditions. You might be like, why do we talk about this so much? Because it's in the gospel so much. It's, it's just all over the gospel. And, and because we are so prone to do that ourselves. They thought if we, if we just follow God's law perfectly enough, God would be happy and then he would get us out of this suffering. If we just learn whatever lessons that God is trying to teach us through this suffering, then we'll get out of the mess on the other side. That was the Pharisees. They, they followed the rules. They imposed rules through guilt and shame on others. They separated themselves from those people over there to try to purify the nation. That was the end game for them. Purify the nation. God becomes happy. They get to sit on top with the Messiah. But they were still infected with sin. We know they were infected with sin because in their pride and legalism, they rejected God himself and crucified their Savior. But the tax collectors and sinners, they, they went in an opposite direction. And, and I think we have to be really careful here. Because it's, it's kind of been common in our anything-goes society to kind of glorify the tax collectors and sinners because Jesus is sitting with them at a meal. Like, yes, let's, 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 let's be grunge. Let's, let's do this, you know. Tax collectors and sinners, so cool. But we can't do that. We can't do that. They were not worse than the Pharisees, but neither were they better. They, they dealt with the fallenness of this world by adopting the theory, if you can't beat them, join them. The tax collectors had, had sold out to the Roman government and, and participated in the oppression of their people. They oppressed Israel as Israelites. That's truly sinful. They, they took as much as they wanted off the top for themselves because that was their own form of, of personal salvation. It was their way of dealing with things. Other sinners, such as prostitutes, thieves, you name it, they, they found other ways to save themselves. God's law had seemed to get God's people nowhere, and so they embraced their own sinful desires. They were sinners and they knew it, and devout Jews reminded them of it often. And so this dinner party was the personification of the sin sickness that infects all of us, whether we think it does or not. To be a sinner is simply to be bent against the Lord's desires by nature. It is to have the God, God complex that says, this world is out of control, I must control it. It, it is to have the type of pride that says, God doesn't know what's best for me, I do. And we are all infected with that sin nature. And the question is, do we know it? Do we know it? The, the Pharisees, I don't think they really understood it. I don't think they really knew how deep it went. They, they thought they were sufficiently putting off the sin nature by adding on their own self-righteousness. 
And so the first question that we have to ask is, do we know, do we really know how infected we are with sin? Then the second question is, do we care? Do we care? See, the tax collectors and sinners, they, they didn't seem to care all that much. Or at least they didn't know what to do with it. Matthew was in his own tax booth, minding his own business, resigned to the reality of the choices he had made, and Jesus had to call him out. Jesus had to make the call to help Matthew see. And that's what Jesus would do at this dinner party for all of his friends as well. You see, Jesus cares about our sin. He cared so much that he entered into our sin-sick world to call us out. He didn't call from a distance. He got up close and personal. We see an example of this in, in, in verses 11 and 12. When the Pharisees saw this, they, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus mercifully entered our sin-sick world immune to our disease. See where I'm getting the whole theme of sickness, right? Those who are sick need a physician, right? And, and there's this assumption in the Pharisees' question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners there's this assumption, isn't he afraid that they are going to rub off on him? Isn't he afraid that he's going to be guilty by association? Because that's what they were afraid of, right? That's what they cared about. But Jesus was a physician. And he was not the kind of physician that occupied his time with routine physical exams and checkups for people who are otherwise healthy. Jesus was an oncologist treating the malignant tumor on our sinful hearts. And Jesus said he came to call sinners as a spiritual physician. In other words, the whole incarnation was a medical mission trip of sorts. He didn't call and treat sinners merely from his home in heaven. He, he, he didn't have a telehealth conversation with them over the web. He didn't expect sinners to figure it out on their own. He didn't just say, uh, take two laws and see me in the morning. Well, Pharisees and tax collectors prove how futile that works. No, he entered into our world. He took on our weakness and frailty. He, he experienced our experience, and he called us out through his own life and death and resurrection. And therefore, once he got to earth as a God-man, he wasn't going to remain separated from those who knew they were sinners. He, he wasn't going to sit back in his, his posh house like the Pharisees did, looking down their nose at all of those people. He wasn't going to spend all of his time sitting in a synagogue talking about all those sinners out there and how the culture is going to hell in a handbasket. Once he came from heaven to earth, he continued entering in to the darkest parts. 
even to eat with tax collectors and sinners. You have to understand that eating with someone was one of the most important things that you could do with someone in first century Jewish culture. It showed dignity. It showed honor. And it was the only way that he was going to reach those who had already written God off and who thought that God had already written them off. See, Jesus came to us. And he had to come to us before we could come to him. He wasn't afraid of contracting our disease because he was immune to it. He was immune to it. This is the beautiful truth expressed in in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus entered our sin-sick world. He felt our weakness. He endured our temptation, yet without sin. Now this brings up an important question, especially as we, we think about the Son of God coming to earth, becoming man at Christmas. Uh, could Jesus, as the God-man, sin? Not did he sin, that's pretty much a settled question. But could he sin? And and how does that help us understand the nature of our own temptation? One of my goals for this series is to tackle some some deep theological doctrines that that are necessary to our understanding of Christmas, that are understanding to our our understanding of, uh, of the incarnation of God becoming man, and that we otherwise don't spend a lot of time on. I want to, to think about these things. I want to fill up the Christmas season with all of the genuine wonder of God that it deserves. And so as we see Jesus enter into the sinner's world in this passage, and as he remains impervious to the temptations that we would face in that situation, I believe that it's a good opportunity to talk about the impeccability of Jesus. Everybody say that word with me. Impeccability. Yeah, when we get to a, a, a theological word, you know you're going to have to say it, right? Say it again. Impeccability. Impeccability, right? It's a word that is used in our doctrinal guidelines for teaching here, in, here at Oak Hill. But I'll bet that, that not a lot of us spend a lot of time dwelling on this idea too much. Like, when was the last time you are like, hmm, the impeccability of Jesus? But when we say something is impeccable, we're saying that it is without any blemish. It is perfect. It is, in this case, it could not be blemished or it would cease to be what it is. So think with me for a moment. Uh, How could Jesus go into the home of a tax collector with all of his unsavory friends and not sin even one bit? Even while experiencing the, the same temptations that we experience. At this point in the sermon, I want us asking a similar question to the Pharisees, only with a lot less skepticism. Like, why can he do that? How can he do that? And I want to acknowledge that there's a mystery here. Uh, In fact, good and faithful Christians come out with different answers to this question of 
of impeccability or peccability. But these are important questions to set our mind on because they, they get to the very heart of what it means for Jesus to be both fully God and fully human, and also what it means for us to be fully human and face temptation in the victory of Jesus. And so we're going to pause here and we're going to consider the impeccability of Christ. And the question of what does it mean that he was tempted in every way? So impeccability, again, is the idea that Jesus could not sin because he is God and God cannot sin. Follow the logic. If God cannot sin and Jesus is God, Jesus could not sin. And any conversation about the, the temptation or sinlessness of Jesus must start here. Jesus is God, and he cannot be less than God in character or nature. But many people would ask that. Well, then, if he couldn't sin, then how could he be meaningfully tempted in a way that he could sympathize with us? You might ask a similar question in your day-to-day -day life. Does Jesus really know my weakness and temptation? Does he really get it? Is he really a high priest like that? And the answer is he does. But we have to think carefully about what that means. You see, Jesus' divinity, his godness, was never once jeopardized in his becoming human. He always was, always is, and always will be God. And he is fully God and fully man from this time forth and forevermore. And so therefore, Jesus had to relate to sin as God relates to sin. So James instructs us about how God relates to sin in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this is such a helpful verse because it, it helps us understand the nature of temptation and the nature of God. You see, external temptation is not the same as sin. We, we might experience an external temptation. It could be something that we, we see or we hear or we touch. It could be a, a figment of our imagination a memory, an intrusive thought, some sort of stimulus. That, that's one component of temptation. But there's another part of temptation that is our, our willful choice to respond to that stimulus in a way that is contrary to God's will. By the way, verse, four, verse 13 is very clear. We can never say that the external stimulus came from God. Never came from God. But we can choose to respond to that stimulus in a way that's contrary to God's will. So for the rest of us in, in humanity who received a sin nature through Adam, our heart's desires are naturally prone 
in the direction of responding in a way that's contrary to God. We are sin-bound. Our natural state is, is dead set against God. And so the stimulus and the desire conceive, and that is where sin is born. So James is saying. And the result is death. But Jesus is God. And therefore, according to this verse, he cannot be tempted with evil in the sense that his divine nature could never be enticed by sinful desire. We talked about this last week, that the, the Son of God is of, a, of one nature with the Father. And therefore, there is one will, one set of desires with the Father. But we also said that, that Jesus is the God-man, and he had a second nature, a human nature, with his divine nature in one person. And according to his human nature, he fully felt our weakness. That's precisely what Hebrews 4.15 says. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He, he cannot sympathize with our sinful desire, but he sympathizes with our weakness. It's very important because we often talk about, about sin like it's just weakness. Like it's brokenness, it's weakness. And there's a difference. We have weakness, yes. But we also have sinful desire. And so Jesus felt the same trials. He felt the same physical needs. He felt the same frailty. He's felt the same degree of unknown that we feel as he embraced our human nature. And he felt the same natural impulse, the natural desire to avoid suffering in some way. But the difference between him and us is that he had both a divine nature and a human nature in himself, in one person. And because of that, the human nature was never corrupted by sin. It was preserved by the divine will. This is an important distinction for us. It is not human nature to sin. It is sin nature to sin. Our sin nature is what we receive from Adam, and that's what makes us prone to sin. So contrary to popular opinion, it's not only human to sin. If you ever hear somebody saying that, or if you ever say it yourself, tell them to stop. Because it's not only human to sin. It's our sin nature to sin. Sin actually makes us less than human in some respects. It stains the image of God that humanity was created to be. But Jesus was perfectly human and perfectly divine. That's what's happening in the incarnation. And therefore, he's always perfectly united in his human will and his divine will. That, that's what a sinless person would do, right? They would have human desires that were perfectly in line with God's desires at every turn. It's not that they would never be weak or make mistakes or, 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 or desire freedom from suffering, but they would never seek after something that the Lord would not want for them. And so when faced with, with the natural desire to deal with his human frailty in some way, Jesus never once entertained sin as an option. 
He knew it was an option for those with a sin nature. He, he could see it from that perspective. But his heart was never wanting that option. He never fantasized over sinning. He never thought, I want sin, but I want God more. He only wanted God because he was of one nature with the Father and the Spirit. To do anything less would make him less than God. And so his own desire, as James puts it, never took the bait of external temptations. The external temptations existed. But every time he felt his weakness, he always sought the sustaining power and plan of God. He did not use his divine nature to minimize the weakness of his flesh. Instead, he used his divine nature to shape the desires of his weak flesh. You see the difference there? And therefore, he never sinned. So let's just put some flesh on this for a second with a, with a hypothetical situation. So, so back to Matthew's dinner party at his house, right? Jesus is there, and, and uh, he's there with a bunch of other sinners. And so let's just imagine that a, uh, a woman of the street, if you will, walks into the party. And we don't know for sure if there were any there, but, but later on in Matthew 21, they're, they're lumped in with the sinners and the tax collectors, and so it's plausible, right? And so this woman takes off her outer robe and she sits down and it's clear that she is not appropriately covered. Happens. And so there's an external temptation. There's a, a stimulus that could provoke sin in someone whose heart was prone in that direction. And it's not that Jesus would be oblivious to that temptation and to how men could feel in that moment. He sees what they see, but here's the difference. He doesn't see how they see it. His lens was not tainted by a sinful perspective. Instead, he instantaneously wants God, what God wants for that woman. He immediately sees her as a woman created in the image of God. He sees that she's been used and abused by men and has mercy upon her. He sees that she has sought out a way uh, out of her desperate situation that is truly sinful, but it's also truly tragic. And instead of indulging in some lustful fantasy or activity, which would make him less than God and even less than human, he would love her. He would care about her spiritual needs and her physical needs. He would move towards her, not to indulge himself, but to serve her. And to call her out of that lifestyle and into a, a pure and holy relationship with him. See, that's what it looks like for Jesus to sympathize with our weaknesses, to be tempted in every way but never sin. Listen, it's not a sin to have an external temptation come at you. Whether it's something that you shouldn't be looking at on the television or an intrusive thought where you're like, whoa, where did that come from? Some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of you are, are living in a world of guilt because you've seen or heard some things or, or thought some things that you didn't want to see or hear or think. And you need to know that isn't sin. It's sin when we indulge our sinful desires with that stimulus. It's sin as soon as we entertain sinful fantasies and think thoughts that are contrary to God's heart. And while we do not have a divine nature of our own, we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ 
do have the divine Holy Spirit with us. Because Jesus took on a sinless life, and he took that sinless life and he paid the penalty that our sin deserves, he could give us his righteousness. And in giving us his righteousness, he also gave us the Holy Spirit. Very God, very God, who is near us and in us, and who leads us to the very heart of God. That's why the Lord's charge to us is, is, is walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's why that could be a promise to us. Submit your desires to God's desires, which are communicated directly to you through the Holy Spirit, and you will increasingly kill sin. Praise the Lord. We now have direct access to the will of God. We have the Holy Spirit who will shape and control our desires if we surrender to Him. And while we still have a remaining sin nature that Jesus never had, the power of sin is broken through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. We are raised to new life in Him. We are new creations, new creatures in Him if we put our faith in Him. You're now free to live according to God's plan and design. That's, that's how we go into the world and not be of it. By relying on the divine nature of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, you will receive power from on high. But that doesn't happen without repentance. And so now we come to our purpose statement. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus mercifully called sinners to repentance. To repentance. Luke's account of this statement fills out the sentence for us a little bit more. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What was Jesus calling them to? He was calling them to repentance because that's where they would find him. Jesus did not sit down at the tax collector's table to affirm this crowd in their sinfulness. He did not come to, to show how tolerant and open-minded he is. He did not come saying, uh, sinners, come to me as you are, and it's okay if you stay that way too. He's not saying, God doesn't care if you indulge your sin over and over again, just as long as you're sitting here at this table with me. No, he came to us so that we would come to him through repentance. When, when Jesus is at this party, he, he's enjoying these people. He's enjoying spending time with them for who they are, but he's not validating what they do. In fact, he's teaching them. That's what he says he's doing. He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to, to turn from their sinful ways, to submit their desires to the Lord's desires. But not only that, he's, he's calling them to love God more than they love their sin. That's repentance. It's to desire God himself and then to desire what God desires out of that. 
It's to remove every obstacle that would get in the way of that. Get this, as, as Jesus is there with them in their world, God in the flesh, he's also showing them what he's calling for them to love. He's showing them how good and merciful and gracious this king is. He's showing them how lovely he is, how worthy of their affections he is. He's showing them the beauty of the Lord and his desires. Just sit with Jesus and think, I want to be like that. He's so full of peace and joy. He's so giving of hope. So loving. He's showing them perfection in the flesh and how excellent it is and how much that was what we were created for. See, this is not some angry street corner on the pre- uh, preacher on the street corner, sorry. <laughs> not some angry preacher on the street corner shouting at people through a megaphone to repent because they're going to hell. This is one who is concerned enough to draw near to the sinner and to embody mercy to them. This idea of repentance is, is really completely illustrated by the verse that Jesus quotes from Hosea 6. The words, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, come right in the middle of a call to God's people to repent of their spiritual adultery against the Lord. Just listen to the tenderness of God's voice in this call to repentance. Hosea says to his people, come. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. The Lord says then, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like dew that goes early away. Therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light. For I desire love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And there they dealt faithlessly. This is what God desires. Steadfast love. Chesed. In the Greek Old Testament that, that, that the Jews would have used, it was translated mercy. And so that's why Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God's heart is set on chesed, on love, not sacrifice. In other words, not external conformity to the law of going through the motions when your heart's not in it. He desires for us to receive and show kindness and mercy that leads to heart-level repentance, to returning to the Lord. That's the whole book of Hosea. The pursuit of a relentlessly merciful God. 
The Lord calls Hosea to marry an incredibly unfaithful woman, someone who would represent Israel and us well in our relationship to God. And he asks Hosea to just keep going back again and again to rescue her from her sinful waywardness. And in this, God shows Hosea and Israel his heart for his people. And the Lord enters in in, in Hosea 6 and he woos and he calls and he, he tears that he may heal. And he strikes down that he may raise up. And he calls out to us. He calls us out of our fleeting and fickle love for him that we inherit from Adam. And he calls us to something better. Come, let us return to the Lord. I love the definition of repentance that I heard one time. Repentance is an invitation back to the party. Repentance is an invitation back to the party. And so often we we think of repentance as a killjoy. We we think of it as a, a harsh demand of a grumpy God. But repentance is an invitation back to the party. It's an invitation back to the the joyful presence of God for which we were created. The table of the Lord in the presence of our enemies. See, Jesus came to sit at the dinner table with tax collectors and sinners. They were delighted by his presence. And in doing so, Jesus was inviting them to come sit at his table. And he's inviting us to be healed by his wounds. He's inviting us to be raised up with him on the third day through faith in him. He's inviting us to be refreshed by his presence as the spring rains water the earth. That's why Jesus came. That's the reason for the season. Jesus, the the perfect physician, entered in He took on our flesh in such a way that he was immune to our disease. And yet he died as a result of that disease so that he might raise us up again. He took on the guiltiness of our sin that we received from Adam so that we could receive his righteousness instead. And therefore we can and we must return to him in repentance. We can now resist temptation in the power of the Spirit, never perfectly in this life because our sin nature still remains, but truly we can resist it because Jesus is restoring us and conforming us into His image of perfect humanity. And so in what area of your life is the Lord calling you to repentance? In what area is He calling you to acknowledge your sinfulness and not just be okay with it, but to instead love the perfection of Jesus more? What temptations have you been indulging, claiming, I'm just too weak? I'm only human. Stop turning to yourself. 
Stop turning to your own solutions and turn to Jesus, the perfect God, the perfect man. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has come to us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.